0: Hi, God's Story podcast listeners, Brent Siddle here. I hope your day is blessed wherever and whenever you're listening. I've got some great news. We're so pleased at the growth of our audience that we've decided to double our output of the God's Story podcast. Over the festive season, new episodes will be released on Wednesdays and Saturdays, and we'll re-evaluate in the new year to see if this is working for us and working for you. So keep an eye out for a new episode this Saturday. Now, on with the podcast. Welcome to the God's Story podcast, episode 18. America has been a big part of God's story since its founding. But how and why was it founded? and on what principles? Well, joining me to answer some of these questions is Robert Tracy McKenzie, a professor of history at Wheaton College in Illinois in the States. He has the Arthur F. Holmes Chair of Faith and Learning and has written many books, including One South or Many, Lincolnites and Rebels, A Divided Town in the American Civil War, The First Thanksgiving, and now the new one, We the Fallen People, The Founders and the Future of American Democracy, and it's just out from IVP, InterVarsity Press in America. Uh, Robert Tracy McKenzie, sir, hello to you.
1: Brent, it's uh, very nice to be with you.
0: And thank you for joining us. Now, why is America at the impasse that it is? It seems so deeply divided at the moment.
1: (laughs) That's an enormous question that I don't think I'm qualified to answer. I'm better at putting it in historical perspective. We are deeply divided. I have spent a good part of my career studying the American Civil War, and so I have that as a context, comparative context, and I can tell you that we're at least as divided as we have been at any time since the American Civil War, and there's all kinds of uh, theories about what what is, is driving that. Uh, and I can't say for sure. Uh, but I certainly think the fragmentation of media uh, and communications um, is, is part of that. It's just enabled us to withdraw into our own silos more and more and more to the degree that we've forgotten how to have constructive uh, engagement with individuals with whom we disagree.
0: Have Americans become dis- disillusioned with democracy, do you think?
1: That's a good question. Uh, And I think it is uh, at least an open uh, possibility. Certainly the survey data, it's hard to know always what to make of survey data, but the survey data suggests that for a long time, Americans have been increasingly frustrated with institutions. So if you uh, ask uh, Americans if they trust government uh, to do what is right, uh, in 1964, 80% of respondents would have said they did. Uh, but of course, it's been following ever since. And now we're typically in the 17, 18% range of folks who say they actually believe that uh, government wants to serve their interests. Uh, so, so yes, more disillusioned with institutions. Are they more disillusioned with democracy itself? Certainly the survey data suggests that the majority of Americans don't think American democracy is doing well. They're saying it is weak. It's getting weaker. And a minority of Americans are willing to say, that they see some merit in forms of government that have strong leaders who do not have to worry about regular elections. Uh, In fact, several surveys suggest that a fourth to a third of Americans would say that they look with some favor on that uh, form of government. There's also a real generational divide. If you were born uh, by the time of the Second World War, something like 75% of respondents say, it's absolutely essential to live in a democracy. If you're born after 1990, that falls to about a third. So there's a real uh, generational component to this as well.
0: Yes, I found it startling that the World Values Survey, you quote, found that only three out of 10 millennials feel it essential to live under a democratic government. I found that quite frightening to me.
1: (laughs) Well, well, it is frightening. And of course, what we're seeing there, at least potentially, is our future. Uh, And so that is uh, disturbing.
0: And Three out of 10 millennials, whereas three to four Americans born before the Second World War found it essential to live. Under yes. Them. So why the shift? Oh, uh, who,
1: who knows? I'm not entirely sure. I think uh, some of it is that we have short memories. Uh, and for uh, millennials, they're born uh, after the uh, end of the Cold War, after the fall of the Berlin Wall, after uh, any sense of democracy is being sort of uh, imperiled by external forces, Uh, And so it's quite possible that um, that they simply don't value it experientially because they haven't been able to think about alternatives or haven't been forced to think about alternatives. I I certainly think that some of those responses that say it's not essential to live in a democracy are ill-informed. They're ignorant. I don't know that it necessarily captures truly the uh, the attitudes of respondents. But I I do think it has to do with with life uh, experience. Mm. That's the best I can come up with. I think.
0: Yeah, some millennials I've spoken to find the idea of socialism quite welcoming.
1: Yes, yes, yes.
0: And uh, I, I, I absolutely,
1: have... uh, and uh, and and some of that also, I suppose. Well, I I, I don't know. I'm not going to uh, s- speculate, uh, but I I think you know if 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 you were born in my generation, my parents, uh, my father served in the Second World War. You have this identity that's very much driven by the understanding of of the United States as a kind of leader of, quote, the free world, of of struggling against uh, international communism. And that that narrative, that story just doesn't have much power uh, for uh, younger Americans.
0: Well, how can a study of history, which is what your book's all about, ultimately, how can a study of history help us as we move forward?
1: Well, that's a great question. I, I think that history uh, as much as anything, offers the opportunity for us to see our current circumstances uh, with a different perspective, with, with new eyes. And so one of the things I argue in, in my book uh, is that before we can mount a vigorous defense of democracy, we need to revisit really fundamental questions, starting with why do we believe in democracy to begin with?
0: Yes. What did C.S. Lewis believe about democracy?
1: Lewis, I think, is a great example of offering us some alternatives. Lewis said in one of his lesser-known essays that there are basically two reasons. If you boil it down, there are really just two fundamental reasons why you might champion democracy. Uh, One, as he put it, was because you have confidence in human nature. The other, he said, is because you do not have confidence in human nature. Uh, And what I appreciate about that insight is that there are these two absolutely contradictory foundations upon which we might build a commitment to democracy. Lewis said, on the one hand, we might have so much confidence in our fellow uh, citizens that we believe everyone's view is so intrinsically wise and intrinsically virtuous uh, that it deserves to be heard. On the other hand, he said, we might think that we are these are his words. We are also wicked that none of us can be trusted to exercise great power over uh, other citizens. Lewis said the first is what he called the false romantic understanding of democracy. The other is the one that he said conformed to Orthodox Christian teaching. And so part of what I wanted to do in the book is just to challenge particularly Christian readers to ask themselves, why is it that I automatically believe that majority rule is the way to go? And I suspect that more often than not, whether we realize it, we've fallen into a trap of thinking it's because of the intrinsic virtue of humanity more than the idea that it's a, a helpful antidote to the fallenness of humanity.
0: Yes. How does an understanding of the fallen nature of humanity help us in our political thinking, do you think?
1: Well, you know, I don't think it automatically has to, but if we begin to be more self-conscious about the assumptions that we're bringing to bear, I think, in, I think it can. Uh, in the book, I suggest that there are Uh, really sort of twin assumptions that we want to bring to bear. One is this idea of human fallenness, the Christian doctrine of original sin, that we are born with certain predispositions to selfishness and self-rule. The other is the idea that we're all created in God's image. And again, to quote Lewis, we'll never meet a mere ordinary human being. We we all are precious image bearers. And so when I think about those twin uh, beliefs, I try to imagine what would it look like for us to bring those to bear in our political debate, in the way that we frame political issues, in the way that we talk about political opponents. And I can't help but believe it would lead to one more humility on our own part, because we're recognizing that our views are never wholly disinterested, uh, but hopefully more charity in the way that we we think of others, because they're also not wholly without merit. I quote Solzhenitsyn, it's a very famous quote, but Solzhenitsyn tells us that the line between good and evil never runs clearly between political parties, it instead runs within every human heart. And so that's really what I'm, I'm reminding us, trying to remind us, is to keep that uh, in the forefront of our mind as we uh, engage in the public square.
0: Why did the founding fathers want to establish a republic? Was it because they felt that people weren't intrinsically good?
1: Actually, the, the founders uh, understanding of, of human nature is, is complicated and we tend to, uh, I think, miss some of that complexity. They hold these two ideas of the potential uh, sort of nobility of the human race uh, and the idea of the selfishness of humanity. They, they hold those simultaneously uh, in tension. The fact that they believed that it was possible for a society to be self-governing and just was a kind of expression of their cautious optimism about the human race. But at the same time, their idea that there needed to be all kinds of elaborate checks and balances to prevent governmental abuses or to prevent the majority from oppressing the minority showed a healthy respect for the selfishness of the human race. So I think we sort of we really need to hold on to both of those if we're wanting to understand their their thinking about humanity as it relates to government.
0: Were the founding fathers Christian?
1: Huh. I'm not laughing at you or at the question. No, I, know, I know why
0: you're laughing because it's, you mentioned it's, that in the book. That's a question you distrust. Yes. It's
1: Well, what I, I say, it. what I say in the book is I always want to uh, come back with the reply. Why do you want to know? Mm, yes. <laughs> and, and what I have found is as often as not when folks come up to me to ask that question, they're really already thinking about how they're going to use that answer in debates in the public square. Uh, the issue has become so politicized it's really hard for us to approach it any other way. So I, I try in the book deftly uh, <laughs> uh, to sidestep the question because I suggest that although though it it's, it's, is important, it's not the question I'm wrestling with. Uh, the founders actually didn't speak a lot about their personal uh, religious faith, but they wrote and spoke constantly about how they understood human nature. So we have a great sort of historical record to work with. And I think for purposes of thinking about how we interact with one another politically, uh, it's it's really the preeminent question we need to be wrestling with anyway.
0: Did the founding fathers want democracy at all?
1: Uh, again, you're going <laughs> to learn quickly that I, I give... Um, sort of complicated answers to simple questions. That's fine. What the what the founders, particularly the framers of the Constitution, who I focus on, what, what they absolutely took uh, as an article of faith was that in any free society, the majority must ultimately uh, rule. That if you live in a society where over time, the majority is constantly thwarted, you live in a free society. So on the one hand, they say the majority should rule. On the other hand, they say uh, the majority or any any uh, element of society that wields power uh, can't be trusted to, to wield that power justly, uh, and so these are two views that are in tension with one another, and that does inform the way they think about uh, majority uh, rule. They actually create the constitution with layers of sort of intermediate buffers between government policymakers and popular political pressures, and so if if you Use the term as we might use it today, democratic. No, they, they didn't favor a democracy. If by that, we mean that politicians should be you know, doing surveys every 24 hours to see where the, the popular opinion lies and conforming to that. In fact, they would have argued that the, often the necessity for the courageous, responsible officeholder would require uh, him or her to, to, to push back against popular opinion.
0: What was Virtue. So important to the founding fathers. You write a lot about this in the book. About the- a lot
1: a lot about, a lot about that. I mean, they inherited, of course, a, a moment in time when the vast majority of the world did not live in any kind of governmental system where the consent of the governed was the foundation of the government's authority. Uh, they believed, and they were drawing on all kinds of political philosophy from the Enlightenment and earlier. They believed that in unfree societies, the, the character of the society didn't matter much but, because basically all of decisions were made by the monarch or the, uh, the dictator. But as you move toward a freer society, they believe if such a society is to flourish, there is more and more responsibility on the shoulders of the uh, electorate, which meant uh, you needed to hope that. Uh, individuals would be guided in their decisions, uh, in their policy preferences, uh, by some sort of concern for the welfare of of their fellow citizens. So they define virtue, I mentioned this in the book, in a way that we tend not to use it today. Virtue meant self-denial. Virtue meant putting the the welfare of the uh, community above one individual welfare. And do absolutely exalt virtue as, as something to be pursued, as something to be promoted. What I do also point out, though, in the book is that they were pretty sure it was in short supply while they very much wanted to promote it. They were not under illusions that it was widespread.
0: So how did the founders then frame the Constitution? This is something that always fascinates me. How, how did the f- uh, founders frame the Constitution to take into account our sinful and fallen nature?
1: Well, I mean, there's a, a variety of ways that they do that, but we can sort of put it into two categories. Uh, James Madison, who was one of the prominent uh, authors of the of the Constitution, said that the challenge for for government uh, architects was to design a system uh, that would allow the government to control the governed, but which would also constrain the government to control itself. So uh, he's advocating checks on power, whether it's wielded by an electorate that uses government as its instrument or wielded by policymakers who use the power of government uh, to possibly oppress uh, the people. So we see it in in a variety of ways. There are these elaborate layers that separate policymakers from the pressures from the constituents. Uh, the Constitution, as it's r- originally designed, calls for the direct election only of one house in one branch of this tripartite government, and that's the House of Representatives. The Senate would not be popularly elected. The president would not be popularly elected. And in fact, the the members of the Constitutional Convention actually were quite blunt at how they didn't think popular election of the president would ever be a good idea. And then, of course, uh, judges, federal judges would not be popular elected. But then when it comes to the government itself, the whole system of checks and balances, of separation of powers, which I joke with my students is something we all learn in our early years uh, and then move on, that those facets of the Constitution only make sense when we recognize that they fear the concentration of power, and they expect the concentration of power unless there is some sort of mechanism to prevent it. So those would be classic examples. The, the president can't act is not supposed to act, at least in the international sphere, without the approval of the United States Senate. The president can veto congressional acts and, and so forth.
0: How did Andrew Jackson, because he's a, he seems to be a, a seminal figure in all, on all of us in the change of thinking about people and about people's virtue, how did he embody the rise of democracy in the States?
1: Yeah, and I think that's a good way that you put the question, Brent. I think he embodies changes that had been gradually unfolding, and then he just sort of powerfully manifests them or models a them. a
0: colorful character very colorful, colorful
1: uh very colorful uh character you know fights in multiple uh duels uh has a very colorful colorful vocabulary An individual born in poverty, Uh, his father dies before he actually is born. He is orphaned and left alone in the world by the time he's a young teenager, has almost no formal education whatsoever, but he rises, of course, ultimately to prominence both as a military figure uh, and then as president uh, of the United States. That uh, sort of uh, rags to riches story, sometimes we associate with the essence of a democratic society. But I think uh, more significantly than that is the way that Jackson talks about the uh, aspects of human nature. He is really the first national figure uh, to suggest uh, that people are naturally virtuous, that the majority is automatically clothed with moral authority. He's the first president in the United States history who will appeal to a popular mandate, When he is a candidate for re-election in 1832, he's taken a particular position on a controversial policy issue. And when he's re-elected, he says, the the reason the public re-elected me is they agreed with me. Uh, And so now I'm going to uh, move forward aggressively. And anyone who stands in my way is uh, defying the American people. Uh, And so he he actually models a lot of uh, approaches that we come now to take for granted, but they're very new uh, at the time that he introduces them.
0: Yes, for a man who was such a populist, he seemed to struggle with authoritarian tendencies <laughs> all his life, didn't he, Paul? He, he, he,
1: he does. He absolutely does. You use the term populist. That is one of the ways that I characterize Jackson. I think he was the first populist American president. He was the first public figure of his prominence to frame issues, the struggle between the people and some element that was threatening the people's uh, well-being. Uh, and yet, uh, I actually think Jock. Jackson is a kind of um, cautionary tale to us because he shows that, that popular movements sometimes are attracted to authoritarian figures. And that actually is how I understand Jackson. Uh, he has no patience whatsoever uh, with any who would brook him. He assumes that There are no ethical reasons for disagreeing with him. Anyone who disagrees with him is doing so for insidious purposes, for their own selfish ambition or agendas. Uh, There is no virtuous argument uh, that doesn't agree wholly with with his own. Uh, He he sort of perfected these views uh, as a general in the United States Army. Uh, he basically risks uh, international incidents at least twice when he's president, invades uh, Spanish-controlled area on two accounts, executes two British uh, nationals on his own authority at another time. Uh, and so he was a loose cannon, uh, and he was thought of as a loose cannon at the time by those who feared him. But he was also adored uh, by many who saw him in some sense as sort of embodying uh, their, their sense of, of worth and value as common
0: Americans. It's interesting because you write about uh, Tocqueville, don't you, and, and his political philosophy. Why, why did he, Tocqueville, think that democracy could turn into tyranny?
1: Great question. And, and the answer is because of a way that Tocqueville conceived of democracy, which I argue is not very common, at least among typical Americans today. Uh, I think most Americans today would say that democracy, to the degree that it is realized, is intrinsically good, that there are problems in a society that probably means we are not democratic in places where we need to be. And Tocqueville did not impute any moral dimension to democracy. He said democracy is morally indeterminate. It is simply the rule by the majority. And so uh, if you accept that, uh, then we have to acknowledge that uh, democracy can lead to morally very just outcomes and morally horrific outcomes. And it would be inappropriate to say one of those was democratic and one was not. Uh, We would say they were both democratic. Uh, And so that is his foundational sort of assumption. And it forms all the way that he thinks through the issue uh, as he observes it in the United States.
0: Well, how can we best think Christianly then about democracy?
1: Well, I think the, uh, the place to begin is to acknowledge that We're always, whether it's explicit or not in our minds, we're beginning with an assumption about human nature uh, in the way that we think about this. Uh, And I think Lewis is right that it's probably one of two options, either uh, confidence in human nature or some doubt about uh, human nature. And so I think we start by being aware of what our assumptions are. Uh, then hopefully we uh, try to hold those assumptions up to the scrutiny of Scripture and believe that we have a a warrant from divine revelation to have the view that we hold. Christians are still not always going to agree uh, on this, and I'm aware of that what I'm most concerned about is when as Christians we really don't even think through the assumptions that are guiding our behavior. All too often I fear we're we're sort of catechized by various public celebrities or or political figures or uh, cable news celebrities. Uh, and I think that's a that's not a wise course to go down.
0: Well, how then do we move forward? How is how is the United States to move forward, Robert, in the next few years, do you think?
1: That's a great question. And I, and I think I don't have the final answer. I just have some thoughts. I think the first step is acknowledging that that democracy is very fragile. We just cannot assume that the United States has crossed some threshold that means uh, there's no going back, uh, that we will always be a society more or less uh, devoted to a, a free democratic society, so we start there. Uh, our system is not to be taken for granted. Uh, beyond that, I, you know, I wrote the book because I was even more than my concern for democracy. I am deeply concerned for the testimony of the church, uh, and so a lot of my counsel would be uh, for Christians as we think about the testimony that we have in the public sphere. Uh, and I have several uh, thoughts. I think one, we need to take seriously. The uh, relationship between an understanding of human nature and in our political system, to the degree that we believe that we each bear some marks of the fall, that our character is distorted by sin nature, uh, that needs to inform how we think about the use of power, uh, and that needs to inform how we think about power when it's wielded by ourselves, just as much as when it's wielded by the other the other side of the of the debate. Uh, I think we need to be very careful about entering into close alliances with a particular political movement, party or politician, because as as Tocqueville argued, that often uh, is um, something that is more driven by convenience than by principle. Uh, He was writing, of course, from the vantage point of uh, France at the time. Uh, The monarchy had been allied with the Catholic Church, and when the monarchy collapses, it really has a devastating effect on the church. And he worried that uh, anytime Christians connect themselves too closely to political movements, they are, to use his words, lashing themselves to a cadaver, God promises the church to be eternal. He makes no such promises about these political institutions. The one final thing that I would mention is, is I just think we need to take our rhetoric seriously. I, th- I think one of the things that Christians in the United States have fallen into recently is I think it's a trap. It's the idea that we need to focus on results. What will a particular candidate deliver? Uh, and if that candidate's policy proposals are ones that we can endorse, then the language is used, the way those issues are framed is just irrelevant. Uh, Just turn the volume off if it bothers you as long as the outcome is good. And I think that's very short sighted because we're actually testifying to the world how we understand ourselves and uh, our fellow citizens in the way that we talk about one another. And too often today, that means referring to others as enemies, uh, as individuals who don't cherish anything worthy of defending, who hate everything that we believe is honorable, uh, and it really externalizes evil. It's it's saying that all we have to do is just to get those people out of power, get these others in power, and everything will, will turn out right.
0: Mm-hmm. Robert Tracy McKenzie, Professor of History at Wheaton College in Illinois in the States, and uh, thank you for your time. He's the author of this new book from IVP America, we the Fallen People, the Founders and the Future of American Democracy. Robert, thank you so much for your time. Brent,
1: it was my pleasure. Thank you so much.
0: We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the God Story Podcast. To ensure you never miss an episode, please subscribe. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please take a moment to give us a rating and leave a review. This will help more people discover God's story for themselves. If you'd like to get in touch or learn more, please visit godstorypodcast.com. We'd love to hear from you. That's godstorypodcast.com.